This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and uh, she has a brand new book out. It's called Fate Presents Planet Bigfoot. So when did the first articles having to do with Bigfoot appear? Uh, The earliest that I could find um, went back to the 1950s, and they were references mostly to abominable snowmen and yeti. And uh, the, the whole North America Bigfoot phenomenon hadn't really broken open yet. Not that it didn't exist, it just hadn't broken open to public awareness. So the early articles dealt with, you know, are there really such things as abominable snowmen and uh, probing into the history of hairy wild men? Uh, you know, there's documentation going back centuries uh, in Europe and in England uh, about large, hairy uh, wild men that um, could be found out in the wilderness. Um, some of the descriptions of them are, are kind of like Sasquatch, but then a lot of them just seem like, you know, hairy hominids, you know, human beings. Um, but in, in the 1950s, that all changed. And in fact, uh, some of the fate writers actually pinpointed the birth of, of Bigfoot or North American Bigfoot um, uh, to uh, 1958 in California. Now, this this uh, occurred at um, a logging site in uh, California, uh, and some huge footprints were found um, in the area. And it um, spooked a lot of people, I mean, a lot of the workers. And since um, it was not unusual for uh, rookies to have jokes played on them, uh, some, some of it was just passed off to jokes. But these were like enormous human-like footprints that were far bigger than anything a person could make. And plaster casts were made of them. Uh, this lumber company was owned by a man named Ray Wallace. And he winds up being a very pivotal figure in the early development of Bigfoot awareness. Uh, so this hits the paper, and it becomes a media sensation. What's making these giant footprints? And so what starts coming to light then are stories from the Native Americans about Sasquatch, you know, these large ape-like intelligent beings that have been on the planet before us, and they're kind of our elders and looking after the planet. Uh, And uh, interest starts. So from the 1960s then, fake coverage starts to pick up uh, because uh, of the increase in attention. Now, the next big development that we have is the 1967... Um, Patterson-Gimlin film. Right, um, right. And that was actually in the same area as uh, Wallace's lumber camp. Um, and uh, Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin allegedly uh, took, uh, Patterson did, his friend Gimlin was with him, of a female Bigfoot striding through the woods. 
there is no other film that has been more examined and dissected except for the Kennedy assassination Zapruder film. Right, right. Uh, and it has been intensely scrutinized. Now, uh, Patterson was out on horseback. He was literally hunting Bigfoot. Um, he needed money, and he's got his camera, and lo and behold, he lucks out and manages to catch this large ape-like creature. It was obviously female because it had breasts uh, striding uh, through the woods. It's a very short clip. Um, it becomes a sensation, and, of course, it's debunked, it's upheld. Uh, the film was has been analyzed by animal experts, anthropologists, uh, people who look at the gate. You know, could this possibly be a person in a big, bulky costume? Could a person imitate this kind of gait and stride? Uh, and the jury, frankly, is still out. And what do you think? Um, I, I'm on the fence about it, uh, Richard. Um, and... One of the things that puzzles me, uh, now in, in some of the articles in this anthology in Planet Bigfoot, uh, there's a detailed examination of uh, how this thing had to move and at what angle and behind and in front of what trees, uh, and could this have really happened the way it, it looked. Um, but one of the things that was pointed out was while this creature is striding away from Patterson, uh, while it is still walking, it turns and looks at him. And it has been pointed out by anthropologists that no animal will do this. Uh, not even people do this, uh, at least very often. If you are trying to get away from something, you keep your eyes ahead of you, and if you want to look back, you stop and look back. And so that kind of puzzles me, hmm. uh, why... Why would that be the case here? Also, the the rest of the creature are covered in hair, and uh, anthropologists have pointed out that hominids, uh, female hominids, do not have hairy breasts. So uh, there were stories over the years, you know, people came forward and said, oh, it was me in a Bigfoot suit, I did it. The suit was made by a guy in Hollywood. Uh, it was all a big hoax. Um, all they wanted was money. Well, Patterson and Gimlin never really made a whole lot of money off this film, and I don't like that argument anyway. That's one of the first things skeptics say is, oh, you're just in it for the money. Well, usually not, uh, unless you're really trying to pull off some really clever hoax. Uh, but to this day, um, there are, the, the camp is divided on whether or not this is a genuine film, and nothing like it has ever been shot that comes close. We've had lots of photographs, lots of very short videos, usually of figures in the distance, very hard to make out, difficult to determine the size and the shape. To date, the best evidence we still have are eyewitness testimonies. Uh, hair samples have been collected, um, inconclusive, uh, at best, uh, the analysis comes back, no known uh, primate or mammal. Uh, doesn't mean it's Sasquatch, doesn't mean it's not. Uh, but um, it was the, the, the Patterson-Gimlin film which really ignited a lot of research then. And uh, so we have qu quite a well-developed field 
uh, today of uh, Sasquatch or Bigfoot researchers. Some people prefer Sasquatch, some people prefer Bigfoot. Um, trying to collect evidence. Uh, there were accounts going back to colonial times of people seeing these creatures in the woods. Daniel Boone called them Yowies, and he even claimed to have shot one. Uh, there are other claims from uh, colonial and frontier times of people shooting and killing these creatures, but there's never been any evidence of a photograph or a body or, or bones or anything. So um, we don't know how to how to take these stories. To date, no one has ever captured one. And we don't have any uh, conclusive remains. Um, the interesting things about Sasquatch is that, um, and this is my opinion too, I don't think it's a flesh and blood creature. Uh, and here again, we have a divided camp among researchers where um, some people say, look, it's, uh, it's an earth species um, just out in the wilderness and wasn't very, very well known or discovered. Uh, but it's a uh, flesh-and-blood earth animal. Uh, and other people who say, no, it's an intelligent uh, creature that lives in another realm and has the capability of interdimensionality and has a connection to UFOs. It is interesting that there are many cases of Bigfoot sightings that are also tied to UFO activity. Yes, yes. There's a, and, there's a great uh, article are, in the book uh, in in the book that you've compiled, Planet Bigfoot, by of course the great John Keel. That's right. And then um, one of the leading uh, proponents of that argument, Kiwoni Lapsaritis, also talks about that about the uh, ET connection, and that the Sasquatch say that they are related to the Star People, and that they were seated here to to help look after the planet. Uh, the Native Americans have many, many stories about these creatures. Uh, some of them are described as ho- hostile and aggressive, and some as benevolent and friendly. Uh, and I think a lot of the current evidence points to interdimensionality. We have so many cases of Bigfoot appearing and disappearing suddenly. Tracks that start in the middle of nowhere and stop. Uh, like something got dropped from a helicopter and then picked up. Uh, telepathic communication. People have encountered uh, these creatures spontaneously and have had uh, what they say is intelligent telepathic communication with them. Um, there are uh, um, researchers who have developed um, the what I would call the rudiments of Sasquatch language. Uh, um, I did want I did want to I wanted to pick up on that actually because there's a interesting article from a good friend Micah Hanks who's just one of the the sweetest human beings alive. And um, I want to uh, take a quick time out. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, Bigfoot language. Rosemary Ellen Guiley has edited and compiled a magnificent a magnificent book. It's called Planet Bigfoot. Fate Presents Planet Bigfoot. And we'll get to that discussion when we come back right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. 
Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Fate presents Planet Bigfoot, edited and compiled by Rosemary Ellen Guiley. Now, uh, just as a reminder, uh, Rosemary, how far back does uh, Fate magazine goes? Didn't it recently celebrate a big, big anniversary? Um, yes, it did. Uh, Fate started in 1948, and so, uh, let's see, we've been around, what, a little over 60 years now. Uh, a few years ago, we had our 700th issue anniversary. Uh, 70 years, just past 70 years. 70. Wow. And we were talking about uh, Bigfoot language, and uh, Micah Hanks uh, has contributed a piece uh, to Fate magazine, uh, asking that very question, and so what are the uh, what are the findings? Uh, well, uh, individuals who've had encounters with these creatures now, many of them, as I mentioned in the last segment, uh, talk about telepathic communication, but they also have heard oral communication, especially if they've been around more than one of these creatures. There was a famous case from the twenties, Albert Ostman, who uh, was. Uh, a miner and said he was uh, kidnapped by Bigfoot and carted off to uh, one of their their own encampments and that he heard a lot of oral communication uh, between them and uh, he eventually was able to to get away. Um, There was another researcher by the name of Burns um, who uh, studied sounds Um, This was also going back to the 1920s, uh, studied sounds and talked to um, Native Americans about uh, the Sasquatch. And he came to the conclusion that um, they speak in what is referred to as something called the Douglas dialect. And uh, it's uh, a reference to the Salish Indians uh, that live uh, out in the Pacific Northwest and uh, they have different dialects, and uh, that the Sasquatch uh, dialect sounds very similar to uh, to one of their uh, speech patterns. Now, there's another researcher by the name of Ron Moorhead who has spent, uh, oh, at least a couple decades now uh, researching Sasquatch in the Sierra Nevadas, mm-hmm. and he has collected a lot of Bigfoot sounds. And he he says that he has pieced together what he feels are at least the foundation of a Bigfoot language. Uh, no one has learned how to speak Sasquatch yet, however. But it, you know, it makes sense. Uh, and I do believe that these these uh, these these are beings. They're not animals or creatures or monsters. They're beings, and they are intelligent. Uh, they have their uh, own modes of communication. Uh, in many respects, they're superior to us because they've mastered paraphysical phenomena that we can't do. There's no animal on Earth that can disappear and reappear in an instant um, uh, and uh, bilocate uh, very quickly. People talk about that, that they encounter a, a Bigfoot and one minute it's here and the next second it's uh, behind them or relocated uh, off to the side. Um they are also purported to have healing capabilities uh, as well. People say they've been healed by Bigfoot. 
And this is evidence that gets harder and harder to ignore. Uh, and um, I, I think that researchers have to put it on the table. Whether, whether or not you still think that it's a fe- flesh and blood creature, you have to consider all of this uh, eyewitness anecdotal evidence uh, from uh, many disparate sources uh, that confirms the same characteristics. We're not dealing with something uh, of this Earth. I, I believe that Bigfoot lives in a parallel world to Earth uh, most of the time, and that it has the capability to come into our world. It seems to like to forge around for uh, a lot of food on this side. Um, by and large, they prefer to avoid people because they consider human beings to be violent and hostile. Uh, some of them have acted out aggressively uh, toward human beings, and uh, others not. They're more curious than anything else. When we uh, come back, we'll, uh, we'll talk about uh, Bigfoot sightings uh, elsewhere, aside from North America. For example, uh, Nick Redfern will check in with an article uh, in search of the British uh, Bigfoot. We'll do that when we come back. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com, the website. And the new book is Fate Presents Planet Bigfoot. More of The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and uh, the book is Planet Bigfoot. Fate Presents Planet Bigfoot. Why Planet Bigfoot? Uh, Because Bigfoot is everywhere. Uh, In earlier times, like I mentioned, Fate's early coverage was on the abominable snowman. It was thought that, well, they're all over there in Eurasia, all these creatures. Uh, And then we start discovering that... uh, well, Bigfoot's in California. Bigfoot's in the Northwest. Uh, oh, guess what? It's in Eastern uh, America, too. It's in Canada. In fact, um, Bigfoot has been reported all over the world, including South America. And I have an article from Scott Corrales about that in Planet Bigfoot. And uh, also the British Isles. Nick Redfern writes about this. Uh, so hard to imagine you know, a, a, an eight-foot, nine-foot bipedal hairy creature uh, in, in merry old England, but there you go. What does Nick have to say about it? There you go. The oldest account on record is 800 years old, <clears throat> and they called it a wild man, um, and it was captured on the east coast of England, <clears throat> and it was described as naked uh, and uh, like a man, but covered with hair, had a long, shaggy beard. And um, he he would only eat raw food, um, and they fi- they finally let him go. Um, they couldn't get anything out of him, you know, in terms of information. And um, he eventually came back on his own free will, and then escaped again, and was never seen. Now, these sorts of hairy wild men have been reported throughout Europe as well. Um, but here we have an 800-year-old account uh, from England. And then there are accounts in the 19th century in England where uh, people out riding at night uh, came across um, these 
huge, uh, shaggy, man-like things that look like one was described as half man, half monkey, had large glowing eyes, um, uh, attacked a man on horseback, uh, and uh, he was able to fend it off with his whip. Uh, but he said the whip passed straight through its body. Now, that's an, another characteristic that uh, people report about Bigfoot today, is that Bigfoot, they've observed Bigfoot passing through solid matter, like going uh, literally into the sides of cliffs or passing through the walls of, of a house, for example. Um, so these sorts of things have been reported uh, for hundreds of years in England, um, and now the current hotspot in England is an area called Canuck Chase, and I was just there this spring. Uh, I did not get to do a nighttime vigil uh, there, unfortunately. But Canuck Chase is uh, a heavily wooded area that's um, very, very haunted, and uh, Bigfoot and Dogmen have been seen there on uh, numerous occasions. Um, so that's the current hotspot in England. Uh, you know, why should England not have these if everybody else does? I suppose, I suppose. <laughs> uh, there's a case of a reporter uh, who actually vanished. Was he, was this reporter trying to track Bigfoot or was he doing a, a story on Bigfoot? Tell me about this story by Charles Sasser. Um, yes. Um, that concern, actually, I think it was um, a woman who vanished. Um, let's see. It was a woman who vanished, and um, she was out in Arkansas, uh, and uh, she's 68 years old. And uh, she'd been out with her husband and uh, her stepson and fiancé, and they were just out walking in the woods. And um, after they'd been on the trail for a while, uh, Gloria, which was her name, she decided to uh, go back to the lodge because uh, it was wintertime and it was kind of cold, uh, and she was never seen again. Uh, search party was brought in, uh, helicopters, uh, people combing the trails. She was never found, uh, and people started speculating that because this area was known for Bigfoot activity and Bigfoot sightings, that a Bigfoot had carted her off. Hmm. And uh, I'm wondering, the uh, the David Politis uh, collection of books on, on uh, Missing 411, all these people that go missing from na national parks and so forth, he's never come out and said, you know, that he that it's Bigfoot, but what are your thoughts on that? So many people go missing in in national parks in throughout North America, uh, and this story about this reporter who vanished just kind of reminded me of that. Well, I <clears throat> I, I I do think that that is a reasonable possibility. We've had uh, accounts of Bigfoot kidnappings uh, going back uh, quite a ways in time from people who have come back to tell about it. So certainly there might be cases where people are abducted and they don't come back. Uh, and uh, it could be uh, not just Bigfoot. Uh, there could be other creatures that could um, abscond with people. There might be dogmen. It might be aliens. But um, I, I think that it's a possible explanation. I, I don't think that uh, 
so many people vanish for no reason at all. Tell me a little bit about the Bigfoot hunter John Green. Well, John Green was a Canadian, and he was one of the most respected uh, Bigfoot um, researchers. And he collected over 3,000 cases uh, in the course of his life. Uh, and that reminds me, I do want to get back to uh, Ray Wallace, too, before we wrap up the show. And, um, you know, he was of the opinion that Bigfoot was real. And um, he, when, uh, when he was interviewed for Fate magazine, uh, he was hopeful that we would have conclusive evidence uh, within the next few decades. But um, he's passed away now, and we still don't have conclusive evidence. But uh, he collected a lot of casts of, uh, he examined a lot of plaster casts of, of uh, big, big feet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and he was known as Mr. Bigfoot. Um, and I know we're kind of short on time here. I just wanted to mention Ray Wallace, yes. who I met at the beginning, as uh, some people say he's the guy who started it all. Well, Ray Wallace wound up being quite a hoaxer. And... Uh, here again, we have very blurry lines about what's real and what's not. Um, did Ray Wallace hoax the initial foot, Bigfoot prints, or did he just start hoaxing after um, Bigfoot mania started? Um, he confessed later on in his life that he had dozens of pairs of uh, Bigfoot prints that he would go out and leave in the wilderness to trick uh, researchers, um, that he had um, costumes made, big hairy uh, ape-like costumes made, uh, and he seemed to be quite proud of that. But did, uh, did a genuine phenomenon start? Was, was the phenomenon originally genuine? And he just jumped in and decided to mix it up a bit. Um, we find this a lot in the paranormal where uh, researchers are on both sides of the fence. They're part of something that seems to be real, and then they're part of uh, trickery on the other side. Right, we saw that with crop circles. It certainly did. How do folks get a copy of Fate Presents Planet Bigfoot? It's available now on Amazon in print. The ebook is coming. That's the best place to get it. Well, congratulations. Uh, what's coming up next from Fate Presents? Do we know? Uh, I haven't decided yet. Um, I, I'm looking at another UFO collection, maybe ancient aliens and astronauts or um, conspiracies. Um, so much material because Fate devoted more attention to UFOs than any other topic. Well, just keep them coming. These are fantastic. This whole series of Fate Presents. Rosemary, always a delight. We'll talk next month. Thank you, Richard. Always a pleasure. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com. Eternal be her memory. So long, Rosemary. I'll miss you. Okay, that's it for me. My thanks to Owen and Ryan. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. We're back with Randy Kramer, U.S. Marine Captain Randy Kramer, who will be appearing at the Alien Cosmic Expo, which is happening Saturday, September 21, Sunday, September 22, at the Airport Marriott Hotel here in Toronto. And Randy will be speaking on the Sunday, the 22nd, and uh, that's at uh, 2.30. And then uh, he'll be joining the uh, the roundtable discussion, which will cap things off at uh, the Alien Cosmic Expo. You can go to aliencosmicexpo.com for more information and uh, to register. So we're talking about these uh, insectoids and the the reptoids. Now, are these the same species that some people have claimed to have encountered or have had contact with here on Earth or in sort of an abduction scenario? Are they involved in any of that? To my knowledge, no. Uh, to my knowledge, the indigenous insectoids and the indigenous reptoids uh, on Mars have no interest of anything happening outside their own world at this time. We do, however, on this planet, planet Earth, have our own indigenous insectoid species that are subterranean that live beneath our feet. We also have at least one indigenous uh, reptoid species that also lives beneath our feet that are pretty different. Uh, from the species from Mars, my understanding of that. Um, but my understanding, again, is, is that when uh, you're talking about abductions or other situations, that would not be the species from Mars. They're very, very um, isolationist in that way. They really don't have expansionist models or much interest in anything outside their own world. So tell me about the last battle that involved a considerable loss of life that you were involved with. Yeah, um, so there were like four divisions. Uh, we got sent to a locale to retrieve an object, which to be honest, I think the whole thing was just a ruse and was probably uh, designed to get rid of a bunch of people, including myself and the division that I was in. Um, so we, there was this, um, so it's kind of a big red round rock. If you, anyone who's ever seen Ayers Rock uh, in Australia, it was kind of similar to this big like round rock that sticks right out of the ground and um, like a big dome. And in this case, it had openings uh, around it at about clock positions. So there were a number of uh, entrances and tunnels that went down into the central chamber of this structure you know trying to identify what someone's alien architecture is sometimes is, is more guesswork than anything else i would say if i was to take a stab at it that it might have been a temple of some kind or or a um some sort of ancient sacred site i'm just going to base that on what my trained observer eyes could tell me without being able to try and describe it to you because it was very different than anything I had ever seen before. Uh, and anyway, it just turned out to be a trap. And so uh, by the time that we're down in the middle, um, we find ourselves surrounded in um, a different tribe of indigenous reptoids swarming in by the thousands and basically just cutting everybody to pieces. Um they had to use a a jump gate that's normally reserved for ships for ship travel 
uh, to get us out of there. They were able to um, create an opening right underneath our feet, so we sort of fell through this jump gate that, again, wasn't really designed for human travel. So a few people were caught in the edge of the event horizon, which uh, means their whole body did not make it through, so they perished. And there were, of the wounded uh, that made it, you know, there were less than three dozen. Of those who survived, I I can't say for sure, but I I doubt it was 100%. Um, But, you know, there were less than three dozen survivors from the entire incident. And this this raid on this sacred tunnel, this was, as you discovered, sort of in violation of some treaty. There there had been a peace treaty signed between the uh, the military and these indigenous groups, correct? Well, that's a good question. I mean, there was an armistice, to my understanding, but I couldn't tell you exactly which tribes were involved in that because just because one group of reptoids signs a treaty doesn't mean you have a treaty with every reptoid on the entire planet because they're very tribal so i'm not sure who we were had the armistice with who we didn't exactly whether this particular group was under the umbrella of that armistice or not that's all a gray area that i can't answer uh it just what i can say is um it was shenanigans of the highest order uh, and it shouldn't have probably gone down that way if it was a lawful operation of some kind and um, it certainly wouldn't have turned out the way that it was if I think it wasn't the intention for most or all of us not to make it through that day alive. So you, you uh, after you recovered from your injuries you spent the last three years of your tour there as a pilot. Tell me about that. Yeah, I sort of, uh, you know, kind of had this childhood dream get to come true, which is I got to be a pilot and I got to fly spaceships, which is pretty cool. So, yeah, um, I I got a promotion, got to go, a commission, got to go to flight school and, yeah, spent the rest of my career as a pilot in an air wing on the EDF-SS Nautilus, which is basically an aircraft carrier in space about a mile long kind of like a long cylinder hmm. so at a certain point um, they do this kind of reverse aging process on you so that you can be sent back to earth into your original timeline is that right yeah they call it age reversing but my understanding what they really do is just hatch you out a younger clone body of yourself and then transfer your consciousness into that clone body and then put you back and then throw your old body in the dumpster. Oh, is that all? <laughs> My word. Uh, so you're reinserted back into your original timeline of what, 1987? Correct. November time frame of 1987, correct. And what were you doing? I mean, you were, what, 17 at that time? I was still in high school. I was a senior in high school. Yeah. Right. Right. And then immediately some of these memories start to bleed through at this point. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I would say right away. Um, it was just, again, without context, you know, I would just wake up from these experiences and think, wow, that was the weirdest, longest, strangest dream. Uh, and when I would have waking visions or other things going on, I would... Um, Sometimes question whether I was having a a sane or an insane moment, and other times 
you know, would sort of cognitive dissonance would kick in. And I can, I can assure you that uh, the frontal lobe of my brain did not want to all of a sudden accept that this was going on and accept that there was this uh, tip of the iceberg that I was experiencing and that there was something much deeper going on. My own cognitive dissonance was happy to go, memories? What memories? I don't know what memories you're talking about. And, and the, the more that I could keep those things buried, believe me, my frontal lobe was perfectly happy to do that. We're just about out of time here, but I mean, were you in, in addition to, you know, meditating and, and so forth and trying to piece the story together, were you able to uh, say, for instance, you know, uh, we're all familiar with the British uh, hacker Gary McKinnon and uh, his uh, discoveries in these Pentagon computers about, you know, deep space platforms and so forth. Were you able to, to get a hold of any sort of documents that, that corroborated this story? Um, not yet. Like I said, there's a process uh, to retrieve paperwork that uh, we've been going through for a number of years. I was told at the beginning of the process that it could easily be a 10 or 15 year process. We're uh, maybe seven or eight years along that way. So uh, we'll see how much longer it might take. Any, uh, sorry, but, any pushback? I mean, are you being uh, monitored? I mean, I, they can't be happy you're speaking out. Um, you know, my people don't mind. My people are the ones that ask me to speak publicly in the first place. So when you when you say they, I mean, that's a good question. There are certainly people who I work for who are thrilled about my speaking publicly. There are other people who are also probably very happy that I am speaking publicly. And then there are those that are not. So kind of depends on whether, you know, they're the good guys or the bad guys. Uh, good guys love me, bad guys hate me. So, you know, that lets me know whether I'm doing a good job or not. All right. Well, I'm sure you'll be uh, sharing uh, more details uh, than, uh, than we had time to discuss tonight when you appear on the stage again, 2.30 to 3.45, Sunday, September 22nd at the Alien Cosmic Expo Airport Hotel, or the Marriott Airport Hotel, rather, here in Toronto. Randy, thanks so much for spending some time, and I hope to see you there. Oh, my pleasure, Richard. We'll see you there. Absolutely. My tribute to Rosemary Ellen Guiley when The Conspiracy Show continues. Stay with us. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed rec room with the simulated wood-paneling electric fireplace and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A big howdy to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740, 96.7 FM here in Toronto. And ahoy to those tuning in on one of our affiliate stations across North America, and of course to those who catch the show on the YouTube channel Strange Planet. However and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes and I thank you for your fine company. For as long as I can remember, Rosemary Ellen Guiley was a part of this program. Now my show changed homes, different radio stations here in Toronto, up and down the dial, and it even changed names, but Rosemary was always part of the show. The last 10 years at Zoomer, she joined me the second Sunday every month to discuss all things paranormal, supernatural, and unexplained. She was always professional and prepared and gracious and kind. And she was the same person off the air as she was on the air. So genuine. 
Rosemary passed away in July in Seattle, her hometown, so I thought the best way to pay tribute to her was to let you hear her at her best. Here she is back in May of this year. This was the last time we spoke with each other on the radio. A few weeks after this interview, she emailed to say she couldn't continue with the program because she wasn't feeling well. And then, a few weeks after that, she was gone. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is a best-selling author, researcher, and investigator in the paranormal, metaphysical, and related fields. She joins us the second Sunday of every month, and she's here for the hour. To add to her list of must-see paranormal locations across the United States and to talk Bigfoot. She's compiled and edited a collection of articles about Bigfoot from legendary Fate magazine. It's called Fate Presents Planet Bigfoot. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? Well, I'm doing well, Richard. Uh, it's been a busy spring, and I just launched a brand new book, Planet Bigfoot, which we'll be talking about tonight. Very yes. excited about that. Me too. But we have some unfinished business before we get to Planet Bigfoot. Last month, you were kind enough uh, to put together uh, a paranormal road trip, the top six haunted locations across the continental United States. And last month, we talked about Salem, of course, Salem, Massachusetts. We talked about the Lemp Mansion, and we talked about uh, Gettysburg. Uh, so next up on the uh, the docket is Waverly Hills. Tell us about Waverly Hills. It's in Louisville, Kentucky, and definitely if you're in the vicinity, you should not pass up an opportunity to go because it is incredibly haunted. I've investigated at the Waverly Hills Sanatorium five times, and I have never been disappointed. Uh, Louisville, Kentucky was uh, badly hit by a tuberculosis epidemic in the late 19th and early 20th century. And to handle the thousands of victims, uh, officials wanted to get the sick people out of the city area. They built this large sanatorium up on top of a hill outside of the city, and uh, it was known as Waverly Hills. And uh, thousands of people were treated there, most of whom sadly died, because uh, they had no antibiotics back then. And about all that could be done for people was rest and nutrition and sometimes really weird procedures. They had strange operations back then that were more harmful than helpful. For example, one was uh, ripping open the chest cavity and pulling the lungs out a little bit to see if they could breathe more easily. Oh, good Lord. But uh, at any rate, you can imagine that the sanatorium was the scene of tremendous suffering for a good number of years. And, in fact, uh, at the height of the epidemic, people were dying at such uh, a high rate that um, officials didn't want bodies stacking up and and, uh, hearses coming and going uh, all the time, which would be upsetting to patients and visitors. So they constructed a tunnel through the hill and uh, put a little kind of railroad track on it and and put the bodies in these little cars uh, and shot them down the body chute, which is now called the death tunnel, uh, to a backside of the sanatorium where the hearses could come and collect them. 
Um, well, the epidemic finally subsided uh, with the advent of antibiotics in the 1930s, and uh, eventually the sanatorium was closed and it became a geriatric center, um, a place where there was horrible abuse of the elderly. That was shut down. Um, it passed into private ownership, this huge facility. Now, get the, I, I have to tell this history of the place because it's so colorful and it really ties into a lot of the hauntings. Uh, this man wanted to tear down every single building and put up a shopping center and the world's largest statue of Jesus. Oh, Lord. Literally. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> and he was able to tear down all the buildings except the main one, which was by then a historic site and protected. He tried to get it condemned. He let it go to ruin. Um, the city still would not condemn it. He finally uh, abandoned it, and it um, eventually passed on to other private ownership, and that's where it is today. So um, Waverly Hills has been restored a bit, but a lot of it is still in ruins in its original uh, condition, and uh, it is loaded with phenomena. Uh, there are apparitions, a lot of it's residual haunting apparitions of patients, visitors, staff. Um, people have seen, like, doctors and nurses and orderlies uh, looking like they're still going about their business. People have heard uh, um, disembodied voices of patients crying for help. Um, there are phantom animals. Uh, two two deaths took place there. A nurse committed suicide on the fifth floor after she discovered she was pregnant, and another nurse threw herself out the window of the fifth floor. And uh, there are children ghosts, uh, adult ghosts. Uh, and if you go and investigate, uh, and there are, there are public ghost tours organized all the time for Waverly, so you can join one, um, you you are likely to have a very interesting evening. Now, one of the things that Waverly Hills is especially famous for is shadow people. Uh, these are dark, kind of unknown entities that lurk around heavily haunted or really polluted places, that is, places where there's been a lot of unhappiness and tragedy. And the first time I went to Waverly and saw shadow people going uh, up and down these long corridors and in and out of doorways, I was shocked. I was absolutely riveted. Um, the staff has many stories to tell about these figures uh, coming very close to people. Uh, when they close up at night, somebody has to go through the whole building by themselves and make sure that nobody's there and uh, shadow people will follow them. People have gotten a lot of EVPs, photographic evidence, um, one of the more interesting experiences I had there was um, there is a morgue, of course, um, and uh, some of the original body racks in the morgue. And a staff person told me that uh, if a person laid in one of the body racks and was pushed in, uh, you would have some interesting experiences. So I did that. Oh, man. You're, you're yeah, brave. You are brave. I, I think I was crazy. Uh, but at any rate... Um, Almost immediately, I was overwhelmed with the sensation of patients who are still there. Like, I, I think there are a lot of earthbound still at Waverly. Right, uh, people right. People who died tragic deaths and didn't or couldn't move on. And they were asking for help. And I could see psychically 
out in front of me this line of people just going off down the corridor, people who wanted help. Please help me. Please help me. And uh, when when I got pulled out, I was with a group at that time, and we immediately did a prayer circle. Um, and we said, you know, it was just too overwhelming to deal with each one individually, but uh, we we did do prayers for all of those who are still at Waverly and are seeking uh, peace and uh, getting to the light. Uh, so uh, Waverly has had some restoration done to it, and some people feel that that's disturbed some of the hauntings. Sometimes restoration does that. But there's still plenty there. It's a five-story building. Um, it's got huge, long corridors, and most of these are open air because uh, it was the philosophy that um, patients needed to be wheeled out into the fresh air and so a lot of the activity uh, that people see with the apparitions and the shadow people are up and down these long corridors with apparitions and the uh, black shapes moving back and forth across the hallways. Is it better to go at night or during the day? Well, you can take a tour during the day, but if you really want the action, sign up for one of the nighttime tours. There are groups that will reserve it for their own private investigations, and then Waverly Hills also runs its uh, its own uh, ghost uh, investigations as well. So do an overnight. Wow. Waverly Hills. That sounds like a, a must-stop on our paranormal road trip. Rosemary Ellen Guiley with us. She joins us once a month. And her website, visionaryliving.com, visionaryliving.com. Next on the Paranormal Road Trip uh, is Winchester Mystery House, Winchester Mystery House. And this is a really bizarre place with a very strange history, and it's also full of residual um, uh, hauntings and phantoms as well. And it's tied to the Winchester Rifle company and family. Um, the house was owned by Sarah Winchester, who was the widow of William Winchester. He was the man who invented the repeating rifle that was used during the Civil War. And uh, they were living in New Haven, Connecticut, had a fine life, lots of money. Uh, and William and their little baby daughter, Annie, took ill with tuberculosis and died. And of course, Sarah was heartbroken. She had always believed in the occult, so she started turning to mediums to see if someone could contact William for her. And finally, she found one who did. And what William told her was that um, all, uh, all of the spirits of the people who had been killed by the Winchester rifle were angry and that they had taken their revenge on William and Annie, and Sarah would be cursed too unless she made amends. And uh, he said, you have to um, move um, out of New Haven and go west and um, start building a house that never ends. Uh, now, this sounds like a very strange way to make amends, but that's exactly what Sarah did. She uh, sold the house. And she moved out to California, to the Bay Area, and she found um, in the Santa Clara Valley a nice little um, eight-room house on 44 acres, plenty of room to expand. And she had inherited $20 million now in the 1800s. My God. That's a lot of bucks. Right, right. Uh, 
and she also had uh, a big stake in the uh, rifle company. So she commenced this endless construction, adding on to the house. And she had no master plan. Uh, she wanted it all Victorian, all the finest materials. And because she had no master plan, the house started looking rather crazy. Uh, there were rooms that tilted at odd angles, elevators that went nowhere, staircases that went nowhere, doors that opened onto walls, um, and all kinds of secret rooms and maze-like passageways through this house. So um, this went on throughout her entire life until she died. And she claims never to have been troubled uh, by the spirits. Uh, she had a, uh, a secret room called the Blue Seance Room. And she was the only one who was permitted to enter this room. And it was said that um, many nights at midnight, she would go into the seance room and summon uh, the spirits uh, of the dead who were around her by tolling a bell and conduct a seance with them. She also held dinner parties for them. She was obsessed by the number 13, so a lot of things in the house had to have 13 uh, window panes, 13 wall sconces, 13 this or that. So she had 13 seatings at her dinner party, and it was for her and 12 ghosts. Uh, and uh, people said, uh, people who lived in the vicinity said they could hear odd noises coming from the house late at night. Uh, organ music when there was no organ in the house um, and things like that. She would not allow people to visit. Teddy Roosevelt wanted to come and visit and she turned him away saying the house was not open. So uh, this construction went on then until she died at age 82, that was in 1922, and then it stopped. Now by then um, she, had, oh, and she had extensive gardens as well uh, by then, she had uh, 160 rooms added oh, to this my. house, 47 when... fireplaces, 2,000 doors, 40 staircases, and all of these little uh, secret rooms that uh, people had to discover later. So the house today is a historic place, as you can imagine. Uh, it's filled mostly with residual phenomena. That is, uh, there was a piano in the house. People can hear phantom piano music, footsteps. People see apparitions. Uh, to my knowledge, there aren't any seances that are conducted there anymore. Uh, for a long time, the uh, governing body of the Winchester House would not allow paranormal investigators to come in, but they have in recent years, and uh, people have collected interesting evidence, photographic and, and audio evidence. Uh, I've never investigated there. I visited there during the day, and there is a very strange vibe to this place, as you can imagine. Uh, here's a woman who is saturated uh, in the spirit world. She literally lived with one foot in the spirit world. And uh, keeping the spirit world appeased and at bay was her, her whole focus in life. Uh, and you can feel that in the house. So uh, that also is definitely worth a visit. The Winchester Mystery House, and that's in, uh, in California. Santa Clara Valley. Santa Clara Valley. All right. So now we're going to head up the West Coast to the Seattle Underground. 
Well, this is near and dear to my heart because Seattle is where I grew up, and I consider it my hometown. And a lot of people don't realize that Seattle actually has an underground city, and it is very haunted. Now, when Seattle was founded, um, it was uh, it's, it's on Puget Sound, and it was located on a tidal flat, a really bad location. And when the high tides would come in, and especially if there had been a lot of rain, a lot of the downtown streets would flood with water and mud. And, in fact, it was said that um, the water could be so deep it could swallow up small children and dogs. Uh, hardly a way to, to run uh, a prosperous city, but that's, that's the way Seattle operated. And then in 1889, there was a great fire that destroyed much of the downtown. And so the city officials took this as an opportunity to get rid of this tidal water problem, and they literally raised the street level by eight feet. They uh, erected uh, pylons, log pylons, and a wall around a 25-block area and literally rebuilt a new street level up over the old buildings, uh, which then went into decay. And that's Seattle's underground, which can be accessed through uh, a number of, of locations. Now, some of it's off limits because it's quite hazardous and not safe. But there are uh, ghost tours that can be taken at night uh, through these haunted parts of the underground. And they are, they're loaded with residual phenomena and ghosts. Some of the ghosts are interactive. Uh, for example, there's a... Uh, still a, a bank with its old bank vault door, and there's a bank teller that uh, seems to like to pull people's jackets and hair. Um, people have heard disembodied voices. There are brothels down there, barber shops, retail shops, uh, all, all the kinds of things that you could imagine would be in a city. Right. The ruins of them are still down there, the original wallpaper. And you can trace your way through a maze through uh, the underground and see some of these original locations. Uh, people have captured all kinds of evidence, photographic and EVP down there. Uh, my favorite ghost tour is run by uh, Spooked in Seattle. Uh, there's another one called Spidel, uh, Bill Spidel Tours as well that's also very popular. And uh, Seattle is... Um, uh, definitely a city worth visiting. It's quite a tourist destination. This is down in the, it's called uh, the old Pioneer uh, Square area, uh, which um, uh, for a long time was a very rundown area full of derelicts, and now it's gone through kind of a renovation. But it's in the oldest part of the city. And uh, a lot of people don't realize that when they're walking around on the sidewalks downtown, they're literally walking over the building graves of the old town. Wow. Uh, and how many city blocks would it be uh, underground that's still, that are still sort of, uh, you know, navigable? Um, I'm not sure how many of, of the 25 square blocks that were uh, damaged by a fire. I'm not sure how many are accessible by the tour, by the tours. Um, and they're they're in different parts too. Like if you if you take different tours, you're you're not going to go to the same parts at the underground because they all have their own particular areas. 
Right, right. Wow. Uh, that's, uh, that's something I've got to do. I've been to Seattle, but I didn't get down under, under the ground. Uh, now we are going to take a, a, a time out when we come back. Uh, Rosemary, Fate Presents. You've got another uh, fantastic book that you've edited and compiled and you've combed through uh, the many, many issues of Fate magazine that all relate to Bigfoot. Planet Bigfoot is next with Rosemary Guiley right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free at Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary traveler, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. This hour, U.S. Marine Captain Randy Kramer is standing by with a most remarkable, some might say unbelievable story of his career in the secret space program, which included a training mission on the moon starting at the age of four, followed by a rather lengthy combat tour on the Red Planet as part of the Mars Defense Force. In the second hour, a tribute to the late Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who sadly passed away earlier this summer. Owen Wolf is my technical producer, Ryan White, my live stream producer. However, there is no live stream tonight. Uh, the live stream on my Strange Planet YouTube channel returns next week. Uh, but whether or not there's a live stream, the Conspiracy Show can be found on the YouTube channel within a few days. Again, if it's a live stream, it goes up right away. And when we're not live streaming, as is the case tonight... It goes up in a few days. Again, the YouTube channel is Strange Planet, and we now have over 17,000 subscribers. So let's get this to 20,000 as soon as we can. If you haven't subscribed, please do so. If you have, tell your friends, coworkers, neighbors, family members, casual acquaintances. Uh, coming up in two weeks, September 29th, John Barber, the godfather of reality TV, the creator and host of Real People, a three-time Emmy Award-winning television and film critic, and a passionate JFK assassination researcher, will be here live in studio and for the full two hours. John was uh, on the program back in mid-August, but I wasn't here, so he got to speak with a guest host, Don Jeffries. But I wanted to bring him back so I could have a chance to talk to talk to this remarkable man, and he happens to be in town. So that's two weeks from tonight. I'm not sure yet what we have lined up for next week. All right, let's get to it, shall we? Captain Randy Kramer 
is going public with his testimony about his service for the Mars Defense Force. The MDF is part of the Earth Defense Force, a UN unacknowledged special access program. His recruitment in 1987 into the U.S. Marine Corps Special Section began a 20-year tour of duty working for the Mars Defense Force, which is the primary defense unit that protects the Mars Colony Corporation. Kramer says he's been allowed to speak publicly about his experiences. Randy Kramer, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me, Richard. Right out of the chute, let's remind folks, you are coming to the Alien Cosmic Expo, which is happening Saturday, September 21, Sunday, September 22nd. And you're going to be speaking on the Sunday. You're kind of like Jimi Hendrix at Woodstock. You're kind of like the big show closer and uh, just before the big round table. But you're speaking at 2.30 to 3.45 on Sunday, September the 22nd. And let's just begin with your incredible story. And it is incredible when we're talking about a secret space program and serving time on Mars and, and the moon and so forth. But just walk me through the process of how you were able to recall these these memories. Was it through hypnosis? How did you recover these memories? Oh, that's a long, complicated answer to that question. I'll see if I can't make it uh, much shorter than it should be if I was to be complete with that. So uh, I would say that the end of my tour, which is right where the suppression, uh, memory suppression technology takes place. Some people often call it a memory wipe, but it's not really. It's just a suppression of, of memories so that you don't remember what happened or you think you were having a dream or any other number of odd things that can occur. How you feel about it. I would say, though, rather immediately I was experiencing uh, dreams, memories, flashes, um, traumatic shocks, and so forth that someone would be experiencing from a post-traumatic experience. So I would say that the memories were bleeding through almost right away, but it was over a, probably a decade before I started to uh, understand that there was a bigger picture of what was happening underneath there to kind of get at it. So it was a, it was a lengthy process. I mean, um, I would say the full memory recovery, it was uh you know, almost 15, 17 years or something like that. It was a really lengthy process, but combination of, you know, a lot of meditative uh, exercises going into alpha theta states in order to get into those memories, did a few hypnotherapy sessions. I really didn't find them that necessary, but a few that I did were helpful. Uh, But for the most part, it really was just about using the skills that I understood how my own mind worked and going into deep memory places and pulling the memories up and sifting through them. And I cannot understate the thousands and thousands, literally, of hours that it took for me to do this. So it was, it was not in any way, shape, or form a, a quick process, an easy process, um, a simple process. It was absolutely one of the longest, most complicated, arduous processes I've ever had to engage in solving a problem in my entire life. But Um, It was very important to me because I knew that remembering was very important. And so uh, even though I knew I was kind of chasing something ephemeral the whole time, I was very dedicated to the process because I knew that even though I couldn't quite remember everything that had occurred, I knew that remembering it was maybe the most important thing that I could possibly do. So that's the shortest 
answer maybe I can give to uh, an answer that really just took decades to sort out. So that's a complicated one. And it was I'm guessing there must have been a, a, a personal cost, per, personal, perhaps a professional cost in order to go through this process to get at the truth. What did you give up? What did you lose? Wow, like probably everything for a couple of decades. I mean, I, I went through uh, relationships um, and friendships and distance from certain family members, um, lost jobs because of it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I pretty much, you could say over a few decades, it cost me just about everything in the process. But like I said, it was, I, I knew that it was more important than anything to remember. So as costly as all of those things are, uh, I wouldn't trade remembering for anything, but it was a very, yeah, very costly process. So let's start, I guess, at the beginning, Project Moonshadow. You talk about being four years old and you're training for the SSP, the Secret Space Program, and you were recruited involuntarily. How did that, how does a four-year-old get caught up in this and why you? Sure. Uh, there's a little nuance here that uh, is easy for people to miss, which is that I was genetically engineered from the ground up for this program. So it wasn't so much accurate to say that I was recruited at a young age so much as that I was engineered and born into the program. Let's drill down on that idea a little bit. I mean, how did this happen that you were essentially born into this program? Tell me about your parents, I guess, in this case. Well, my parents weren't exactly voluntary participants in this process either. Uh, in fact, I, I don't know that any of the families uh, involved were voluntary. Uh, this was a process which families were identified by genetic markers and families that were seen fit to have certain genetic markers were then set aside to, uh, for genetic samples from the mother and father to be taken, uh, blended together in sort of a test tube environment, and then to have um, certain codons removed, excuse me, and then replaced by extraterrestrial DNA uh, to enhance uh, certain physical, mental abilities. So, yeah, it was uh, not really a voluntary process on anyone's part. It was just sort of uh, done. And then you're taken in from your bed at night. Uh, so is is this, I mean, it sounds an awful lot like an alien abduction. Well, they're using really similar technology, to be honest with you. So um, I would say for the most part, uh Wormholes, jump gates were used, so I would often wake up because the implants in my head would click on and would wake me up, and a wormhole or jump gate would appear in the wall or closet door of my room. A couple technicians would walk through. Uh, I was quite familiar with the process, so I'd get up, they'd walk me through the jump gate, and then take me to a training session or to a facility where I would go through a training protocol and then return. How were you treated? Were they were they kind? Were they cold? Uh, I mean, I was a soldier, I, I, so I wouldn't say that they were unnecessarily cruel or mean, but we certainly weren't coddled. So uh, I, I would say we were treated fair and firm. And where was this base on the moon? Well, Luna Operations Command is on the backside, and I, I honestly have been there, but I could not even tell you what the actual scope of the facility is. So 
uh, other other than saying that it took some place near underneath the surface at Luna Operations Command. I couldn't be more specific than that. And there, how many of the uh, of you were there? Uh, there were three hundred test subjects, uh, children uh, who were put into the program. I'm not sure how many auxiliary personnel. What was a typical day of training like? What did you do? Do you remember? Well, I mean, it changed over time. So the younger we were, the more the training resembled games, physical conditioning, uh, puzzle testing, things like that. And as we got older, then, you know, it became practice weaponry and then, you know, live fire, ammo weaponry, high tech weaponry. So it was it was an evolving process when we were very young. I say it was just said games. Uh, and by the time we were in our early teens, it was, you know, um, full-size adult weapons and uh, high-tech weapons, including plasma rifles and rail guns and stuff like that. And, and did you develop relationships with your, um, your classmates, I guess, for lack of a better term, your fellow trainees? Yes and no. I, I mean, we had a familiarity with one another due to the training protocols, um, but we didn't really spend time socializing. So I don't know how to describe what a relationship like that is, um, except that it's it's sort of based on it's task oriented, it's professional oriented. Uh, you're not spending time you know, talking about your favorite color, your favorite kind of ice cream, you, you're pretty much having conversations and relating in a way that's uh, task related. So as odd as it may sound, this was a, it was just a very squared off professional relationship with these people. And how long would these training uh, sessions last before you were sort of sent back to your bed? Anywhere from about 12 hours to seven or eight days. And then you were sent back in time. So it was like if you disappeared on a Tuesday and you were gone for a week, they sent you back a week in time. Is that the idea? Right. You basically come back 15 minutes after you left. And each time was your memory wiped? No, the memory sort of suppressed and sort of separated at that point. So I can remember when I was young waking up after training sessions. Um, but because I didn't have a context to understand that I had actually been to another place, even a memory of having been to another place would really just seem like a weird dream. So I would often wake up with these incredibly vivid, visceral, uh, dreams about training programs and training protocols and peculiar locations and so forth. And would just um, think that they were strange dreams. It really took me some years of my life later to realize that other people didn't have those dreams just, you know, out of course, that that was weird. At the time, it, it didn't seem out of course for me or, or, or strange, but later in life, I realized that that was a very strange thing. Who did you learn eventually was behind Project Moonshadow? Who was running that operation? I was run by United States Marine Corps Special Section. And there was no involvement of other countries, international groups, etc.? Um, to my understanding, it was a, a, a localized program, stateside program. There were some extraterrestrial scientists and engineers who helped us with the program, but it was pretty much uh, a stateside program only. And how long had that base been there on the moon? 
Oh, gosh. I think it was uh, they started construction on that thing back in the 50s, 1950s. Randy Kramer is uh, with us here on The Conspiracy Show. Just a reminder, he'll be appearing at the Alien Cosmic Expo, which is taking place at the Airport Marriott Hotel here in Toronto, September 21-22. Randy will be speaking on the uh, the Sunday, the 22nd, at uh, 2.30 p.m., and then he'll be taking part in the uh, the Speaker Roundtable which is happening between 4 and 5 p.m. And people uh, can go to aliencosmicexpo.com, aliencosmicexpo, all one word, .com for more information and uh, for tickets and to register. After Project Moonshadow, uh, after you complete your training, at what point are you sent to Mars, this colony on Mars? I was deployed to my actual tour of duty when I was 17 years old. Um, technicians came through a jump gate like normal I figured it was a normal training exercise but it wasn't I got taken to Luna Operations Command for a physical exam psych eval, sign the contract and then get put on a transport ship that took us to Mars How long did that journey take? (sighs) Ten minutes Uh, the The ship took a jump gate so the ship itself sort of, everybody boarded it, it exited the hangar, and then it took a jump gate and was there in a matter of minutes. Now, the, uh, well, to describe this, this uh, installation on Mars, there's a number of c- colonies there, right? Five, I think the number was? I, I don't know how many colonies there are on the moon at all. I only know of uh, the L7 colony, and there are... To my, there were, to my knowledge, uh, five or six colonies on Mars, but we're not sure how many of them are fully operational at this time. Right. And, and the group on Mars, now this is an international group, correct? Correct. Yes. Tell me about it. Uh, it's broken down into a lot of umbrellas. So uh, the colonies are run by an outfit called the MCC or the Mars Colony Corporation. The Mars Colony Corporation operates under the umbrella of the ICC, which is the International Corporate Conglomerate, which operates under the umbrella of um, the sort of loosely put together covert military space program activity, which is a combination of military programs, corporate programs, uh, global cooperative programs that are not always cooperating. That gets complicated. Um, but it's it, it gets a little it can can get a little confusing and a little messy because it's not like one organization that just runs everything. So, but it's not just the United States, right? There are other countries involved: Germany, Russia. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, d- depending on how long any individual participating countries have been participating, might depend on just how developed their own space program or their own participation is. But you have. Participation with most of what we would call the sort of G20 countries. But but it's kind of ironic, and I think you've pointed this out, is that here we have the United States, Russia, China, cooperating on Mars, yet back here on Earth, uh, you know, they're not exactly getting along. So what's happening there? That's an interesting dynamic. This has always been one of those really interesting things that, to me, is kind of like understanding a relationship of 
oil and water. Uh, and if you anybody who's ever taken a high school chemistry class, you may have had a, a chemistry teacher have a, a flask full of an oil and water and watch them how they just don't mix together no matter what you do in the same vessel. And in some ways, what you have here is you have these covert military space programs operating together, and then you have normal operational state government, and they're kind of like oil and water. There is a place where they do connect, but not in the way that some people would think that they would. So uh, most people who are going about their day-to-day social government, economic business in the various countries of the world are doing so from the perspective that there is no such thing as a covert military space program because they're not in on the know of it. Those who are in on the know of it are the ones who are responsible for sort of tying the loose ends together. But for most individuals who are in the regular operational governments, militaries, uh, they're absolutely clueless about covert military space program activity. So uh, it's kind of an oil and water thing. They just don't mix, for the most part, the way that they have set up operations over the over the decades for them to be very separate. And so you're now uh, you're a captain in the U.S. Marines stationed on Mars, correct? Not at that time, no. I, I started as an enlisted person, came in as a private, and had to claw my way up through the, through the ranks before I made captain. And and again, uh, at night, you're transported uh, back to your bed, or or are they at this point? Are they taking you? Uh, are they still taking you from your bedroom, or are you are you uh, you know somewhere else? Do you mean currently, or do you mean when I was no, on when, my first, when, you, yeah, when you were on when you were stationed on Mars? Oh, right, yeah. right, certainly. No, no, I was there twenty four seven. I lived there for seventeen years, so there was no coming back and forth. We got sent, and we stayed there until we were done. My word! And again, this is this must be so unbelievable to many people listening, and incredible. Um, I mean, were you able to bring back? Anything, any that that might substantiate or corroborate these claims. For example, uh, I don't know, a battle scar or uh, some sort of an implement, a tool, some documentation. Well, I, I, people like to ask questions like that, but I need to convey that there's simply no way in which that could happen. Um, you're you're not. It's not a situation where I have my own backpack and my own clothes and, and I'm not completely searched or stripped down or, or, or put from one uniform to another by other personnel, which is what's happening. So there, e- even if I had uh, taken some item that I thought that I could sneak back and shoved it into an orifice hoping that I could sneak it back, they still would have found it and I still wouldn't have been able to bring it back. So now I do have a, a couple of dog tag implants behind my ears I'm hoping to get removed and looked at. So, you know, we're hoping to have some evidence in that sense at some point. There's a paperwork process we're going through that some point we expect there to be a settlement. But yeah, it's just it's a very clean process, meaning uh, the, the organizers of this process have made sure in a quite sanitary way that there is nothing that you take with you that they don't want you to take with you, and there is nothing you bring back that they don't want you to bring back. All right, Randy, we'll take a time out. When we come back, we'll uh, find out what you and the, the other troops were doing on Mars. What was your your stated purpose? We'll do that on the other side. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Thank you. 
PIN numbers, passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Randy Kramer stays with us. Marine Captain Randy Kramer telling his astonishing story of being stationed on Mars in an underground uh, military facility. And again, a reminder, he'll be speaking at the Alien Cosmic Expo happening September 21-22 at the Airport Marriott Hotel in Toronto, aliencosmicexpo.com for more details. So... What was the purpose of, of, of you being on Mars and the other troops? Well, it was a stated purpose that we were there to protect a perimeter around the colonies. But over time, what I began to understand was that our primary purpose there was to test weapons technology. So we weren't really there so much to protect anybody so much as we were to have uh, regular kerfuffles with the locals in order to perfect military hardware. And you were staying at the what was called the main settlement, which was the first Earth settlement there. Tell me about Ares. Oh, no, no, no? no. We, I, was, I was never, I mean, Ares Primus is the headquarters of the MCC and where the colonies are, but I mean, I've been to Ares Primus, but I've never been to the colonies proper. Ah. So we were at a, a forward operating station called uh, Forward Station Zebra, uh, which it was way north. Uh, so no, I was actually never stationed at the colonies. I've never been inside the colonies. Don't even know what they look like other than what they've been reported to be my other persons. And uh, really the stops at Aries Primus were not much more than stops. So you were not allowed to, to mix uh, to, with with the, the settlers, I guess we can call them. Oh, no, not at all. Yeah, yeah, we were kept very separate from them. But, but do you know, what can you tell me about these settlements? I mean, how are they organized? What can you tell me about the people, uh, the, the, you know, the types of skills and the types of people that were recruited to colonize Mars? Um, that's a slightly complicated question to answer because the colonies are separated by nation states. So uh, the first sort of, you know, whatever it was, five or six uh, nation states that were able to financially put them wherewithal together to build a colony were able to build the first colonies, which have financially struggled over the years, from my understanding. Um, because they're run by different nation states, which have different social political ideas about how to run a colony, which includes economic system, social structure, uh, it, they're all run very, very differently. And because I, again, have never been there, I couldn't be more specific other than to say that they're interesting socioeconomic experiments run by the countries who have started the individual colonies uh, to see what works and what doesn't. And so there have been some financial struggles. There was a worker revolt. We're really not sure what's happening across the board right now. There's a lot of um, not information that's flowing clearly to and from the colonies right now. And were you also there to to stake out a portion of Mars as a, as U.S. territory? Well, we certainly were under the impression that we were being territorial, that we had a territory that was ours to protect, to defend anything that came 
to incur upon that territory. We, you know, met, reached out to meet them, fight them on the field of battle if necessary. Uh, but again, it turns out that that just wasn't really the purpose in the end. I think a lot of that territorial questions were arbitrary based on tactical decisions on where the best places to test military equipment were more so rather than it being an actual necessary territorial you know location that we were securing territory with uh, I think that to be honest the technology that protects the colonies proper from any proper invasion is probably a little more high-tech than just soldiers in battle armor to be honest with you so um, I'm not sure exactly what they're using to protect the colonies but I think it's um, a bit more of an iron fist than just guys in body armor one of the most remarkable things that you that you learned uh, on Mars was that the you say the atmosphere the air there is breathable tell me about that oh sure uh, it's thin uh, the farther north you go, the thinner it gets. So think of it kind of like a high plains, uh, mountainous environment as far as what the air, you know, the thinness quality of the air. But it's certainly breathable. Uh, when we were towards the equator, uh, the temperature outside, you know, felt like it in broad daylight midday was well into the 50s, maybe low 60s Fahrenheit. Uh, and then certainly when we were up farther north, it was much, much colder, closer to freezing more often than not. But yeah, breathable, just thin. Yet we're told Mars has no atmosphere, virtually no atmosphere. Well, that's actually not completely true either. There's this interesting um, way in which NASA has been uh, telling us information about the quality of life that we understand or the quality of the atmosphere and so forth that we understand it to be over time. And so if you go back to the Viking lander, even though there was an experiment on the lander that demonstrated that there was uh, microbes in the soil, which is demonstrating that there was a gaseous environment that they could live in, they tried to tell you, oh, no, wait, there's really not a livable environment. And then some time later a few years back we end up they say oh no wait wait now we think there's uh water droplets that form and little rivulets of running waters we think there's actually some water on the surface and then like oh oh wait now we've discovered there's an underground lake that uh, might have a whole bunch of water in it and then they're like oh wait uh, the mass gas spectrometer shows that there is actually signs of oxygen and carbon dioxide and moisture in the environment, and there may be livable atmosphere there right now. And then, oh, wait, now there's actually underground oceans. So most people have not been following these stories, but I have. And so some of these also have sort of come out in what we call the kind of back in the days when people used to read newspapers – uh, a 12D story, meaning uh, when they wanted to bury a story back in the old newspaper days, they would just put it on section D, page 12, because nobody hardly ever reads that section. So some of these articles were not front page news stories, were not, you know, things that were spread across the internet. They were more quietly uh, mentioned, and if you weren't paying attention, then it completely would have gone over your head. But the truth is, uh, what they have admitted as of this point right now is that 
there's water, there's frozen water, there's water under the ground, there's potentially livable atmosphere uh, with moisture, oxygen, carbon dioxide, nitrogen, um, and sources of under, vast sources of underwater water, under uh, underground water, sorry. So that's what they've admitted so far is what's there. Now, they still haven't quite said, oh, yeah, there's an oxygen environment. But my favorite quote uh, when they put this article about uh, about looking through the mask gas spectrometer and the telescopes of seeing that there was actually uh, atmosphere, that there was uh, live, uh, breathable gases, potentially moisture, the quote from the director of NASA at that time in the article said, we may have to accept that there is a livable atmosphere on Mars right now. That was the director of NASA at the time in his own words in that article. So they've actually been telling us quite a bit. They're just doing it so quietly and so subtly that most people don't know that. Were you living above or, or below ground? Definitely below ground. Uh, we lived inside a mountain. Were you anywhere near Sidonia, and had, had you or had you visited Sidonia? Never been there, and we were way farther north than that for sure. Was there any talk about Sidonia? No, not not that I ever heard of. Hmm. So, tell me what's a, a, a typical day uh, when you're in this outfit on Mars? Are are you are you? conducting military exercises? What are you doing mainly? A typical day is either train, 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 or patrol, 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 and if things get exciting, then fight, fight, fight. But that's mostly it. Uh, You train, we patrol, we eat, we sleep, we poop, we fight, and that was about it. Uh, And we'll talk about who you were fighting uh, coming up in just a few moments because we're uh, we're coming into a break here. Uh, But just tell me about your, your weaponry. What kind of weapons did you have? primary weapon was a rail gun, which is a magnetically propelled uh, rifle. It, people don't know what that is. It's a series of electromagnetics, electromagnets, I'm sorry, that turn off and on rapidly, uh, take a magnetic projectile, and it hurls it down the end of the barrel uh, in a little magnetic field. So you get this incredibly fast flying projectile out the end of the barrel with out a chemical explosion, which is where you get that kickback from. So you get this very steady shot uh, that you also have a very low heat generation. So the two main problems with a regular bullet is uh, jumping, the barrel jumping from the kickback from the chemical explosion and overheating from the chemical explosion. So a magnetically propelled rifle solves both those problems. All right, we'll uh, we'll take a time out. We will come back and talk about the enemy combatants in this remarkable story. Captain Randy Kramer, U.S. Marine captain stationed on Mars when the conspiracy show continues right after this. I'm Richard Serrett. Stay with us. Providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. So, Randy, you you were talking about getting into these skirmishes and these heated battles. Who exactly or what exactly were were you fighting? Well, primarily... We were territorially adjoined to an indigenous insectoid species and an indigenous reptoid species. So most days it was either indigenous insectoids or indigenous reptoids. And, I mean, how organized were they? Were they evolved? Were they... 
you know, did they have uh, advanced technology? They're, I consider both of the species in their own way to be incredibly evolved. Um, their use of technology was certainly a little bit different than our own, uh, but they were highly intelligent, highly communicative, very advanced. Certainly their technological capabilities were very, very high. Uh, how they chose to exercise or use those technological abilities uh, has more to do with uh, them socially or as a species, but they were very advanced. And you describe their living conditions uh, as hives or nests. Just explain a little bit more about that. Well, that's how they were described to us. Um, I consider them to be very well-developed living quarters. Uh, uh, the insectoids had really, really amazing interior architecture. I mean, they could dig out uh, a series of tunnels and chambers and that, you know, looked like they were done uh, by professional construction crews with, uh, you know, levels and, you know, able to smooth down the surfaces to, um, I mean, it was just, it, it was more, it was way more incredible than what I expected. I expected uh, to be more like an ant hive, you know, to sort of like rough around the edges and just rough tunnels dug into the dirt. And it was just not that at all. It was incredibly uh, advanced engineering. The reptoids had done an amazing job of converting these caverns into uh, dwelling spaces since they'd been living underground for thousands of years, as I understand it. Um, developing these underground communities was pretty essential, but they live quite comfortably and quite well underground. Um, and again, there was the evidence of advanced technology to have created these spaces, but not necessarily the evidence of a lot of the use of that advanced technology. But in the case of the indigenous reptoids, this was really a personal choice. Uh, they felt since technology had nearly destroyed their planet that the excessive use of technology was in itself a negative cultural trait. And so they chose to believe that anything that they could do without having to use some form of advanced technology was better off than uh, creating a robot that they push a button or something with. So they, they had this very interesting idea about that. And, and how did these two indigenous groups get along? Did, they, did the reptoids fight with the insectoids or were they united in their battles against you? Oh, no, they fought all the time. Yeah, so uh, it, it was pretty much a three-sided chess game in that way. So it was, uh, dep depending on the day, it could get very confusing. And, I mean, when these colonies were first established on, on Mars, did they initially get along with the indigenous insectoids and reptoids? And, and, and then, if so, what changed? I honestly couldn't tell you uh, that. I am not privy to the history of the colonies or pretty much anything that happened before I got there. But were the were the insectoids and the reptoids uh, involved in skirmishes with the colonies or just with the the military uh, groups? Again, when when we were there, uh, we were engaging with them militarily on a regular basis. The colonies had been there for some years before I arrived there, and I'm simply can't say what was happening before I showed up there. Were you ever involved in, in sort of close proximity, like hand-to-hand -hand combat with these these creatures? I mean, how would you describe them, their physicality? 
Oh yeah, all the time. Uh, the indigenous reptoids, uh, you know, they could be anywhere from about you know five and a half feet tall for a little one to almost seven feet tall for a big one. Um, the insectoids, the drones are about again maybe five five and a half feet tall, but they tended not to engage in combat themselves. They preferred to engineer other insects to do their job for them. So we were more often when dealing with the insectoids facing swarms of beetles and things that they would send after us. It was really quite annoying. All right. We'll uh, take another time out. One more segment remains with Captain Randy Kramer right here on The Conspiracy Show. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.